Actually, we have a few scripture readings for today, and the first one is 2 Samuel 12, 10 to 12. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Second Samuel 13, 30 through 33. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth and all his servants who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men, the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead, for Amnon alone is dead. 2 Samuel 18, 31 through 19, 4. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, O oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. It was told Joab, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day, the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day, as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee a battle. The king covered his face, and the king cried with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. O oh, my son Absalom, my, my son, my son Absalom, would I, I had died in, instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. I was no stranger to death, no stranger to tears, no stranger to murder, no stranger to disappointment, no stranger to grief, no stranger to sin, but nothing in my life had combined all those elements into one brutal intensity as the death of my son Absalom. In case you're wondering, my name is David, King David. I think you've been 
uh, reading through and listening to episodes from my life as recorded in what you would call Second Samuel. Those are not stories of which I'm proud. In fact, I would say to those of you who have been here over recent weeks, I apologize for any discomfort that I've caused you from what you've had to read about my life. Those were dark, dark chapters in my life. I shouldn't actually have been surprised by them, however, because Nathan the prophet, when he had confronted me about the adultery and about the murder, he told me this would be the way. You just heard it read by Sandy, but let me read it to you again. Here's what he said to me. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. As I think you've heard, God, God forgave me my sin. I mean, that's amazing grace in and of itself, but the warning to me was that the consequences of my sin, the forgiveness of my sin, would not cancel the consequences of that sin in my life or in my family, and boy, was that true. And so I asked your pastor if I could come and have a few moments of your time today to, to tell you the next part of the story, not because it gets any prettier. If anything, it just gets worse. But I wanted to come to tell you it and to ask you that if there's one thing that you remember from what I tell you today, it is this. It's not complicated, but if you heed what I say, you will spare yourself untold grief in your life, and it's this. Do not give in to the temptation of sin, because it never pays off. Do not give in to the temptation of sin, because it never pays off. If I could have gone back and seen everything that would happen as a result of that fatal gaze of mine upon Bathsheba, I swear I would have torn my eyes out before I looked, before I stared, before I, I acted upon that lust. But none of us are able to see the future with that kind of precision, are we? And so we flagrantly blaze ahead and then pay the price. So as I tell you my story today, just keep that in mind. If, if, that's, if this is the only thing you remember, then I've done my job. Do not give in to the temptation of sin, because it's never worth it. I think you heard uh, last week about the evil, evil rape of Tamar by my son Amnon, and how furious I was about that. I was raging about that and did absolutely nothing about it. Absolutely nothing. That was the kind of father I was at that time, failing to step in, failing to act. And so, so Tamar goes to live with Absalom, my son. And Absalom every morning looks across the table at, 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 at Tamar and sees the darkness of her weeping face and, and sees how her future has been absolutely ruined by that violent act against her. And Absalom is furious. Absalom is raging. Absalom wonders why his father could not have stepped in and acted upon what had been done. 
I mean, for all the years of his growing up, Absalom had listened and heard the stories of my heroism, my courage. I don't think it's overstating the case to say I was his hero. And on this one occasion when he wanted to see my courage and my heroism acted upon, it was nowhere to be seen. Just as he had seen me fail, might me succeed, now he was seeing me fail. Absalom was absolutely furious that I had failed to exact justice as I should do, and so he waited two years for me to do something. Two years passed, two, nothing had happened, and so after two years, Absalom decides he's going to take things into his own hands. And so he comes to me one day and he says, Dada, I'm going to have a sheep shearing festival. I don't know if you've ever been to one of those. They were big in my time. I'm going to have a sheep shearing festival and, and uh, I'd like you to come and bring all the servants and bring all your sons. And I said, I, I don't know, Absalom. I, I mean, I honestly didn't want him to go to all the bother, all the expense. I said, I think I'll decline. Well, he kept pressing me and pressing me. I said, no, I, I don't think I'm going to come. And so he says to me, well, maybe if you can't come, maybe Amnon can come in your place. I was somewhat suspicious about this. I said, well, why are you singling out Amnon? Why does Amnon have to be the one? He wouldn't really tell me. He said, well, please, just let Amnon come. And so eventually I, I said, okay, he can come. I mean, what, what bad could come out of that? I mean, all the other sons were going to be there as well. Yeah, it was just another example of me being passive, not pushing through, not working out what was really going on. I realized that just as, you know, Amnon had used me as a go-between to lure Tam Tamar into his, into his bedroom now, lo and behold, Absalom was lure, using me as a go-between to lure Amnon to his death. And so the day of the sheep, fearing, sheep shearing festival comes and... Uh, uh, everyone's invited. I'm not there, obviously, but I hear everyone's having a great time. Absalom's biding his time, waiting just for Amnon to loosen up sufficiently during happy hour. And sure enough, eventually, he's drunk enough that Absalom can do the dirty deed, do what he thinks I should have done to begin with. And he has Amnon murdered. My son, my son Amnon, dead. Do not give in to the temptation of sin because it, it, it's never worth it. It's never worth it. I was devastated by, by uh, the, the news when I got it. Amnon was dead, but you know, it was still passive devastation because I didn't do anything about it. Still, Absalom wasn't going to risk the possibility of you know, being found out and confronted for what he did. So he gets out of town. He, he escapes. He goes into exile. For three years, he leaves. It's not like I didn't know where he was. He'd gone to Gesher. But in those three years, I never went to see him. I never sent word to him. I, I never acted upon the knowledge that I had. Oh, it's not that I didn't think about him. I thought about him every day, but didn't do anything about it. Did nothing about it. And then, there was one person in my entourage, Joab, commander of my army, who says, you know, I need to do something about this. Because, and that's not because, you know, he was an expert in family systems or thought, you know, there needed to be family harmony here. He was just concerned because of the potential political fallout of 
the, father, the king and his son not talking to each other and the son being in exile and the possibility of an uprising against the king. And so he decides, I, I need to facilitate some kind of reconciliation here. Well, it doesn't quite work out the way he thought it would. He, he uh, ends up getting this woman from Tekoa to kind of role play for me. He, she, she comes to me playing this role of a bereaved widow and she's talking to me. She's telling me this story about her uh, two sons and one of the sons murdering the other. You know, I'm thinking Cain and Abel. I'm, I'm a little dumb to realize that there's something else going on here in the comparison of the two stories. But there was this kind of, you know, Nathan moment. You know how Nathan had said to me, you are the man, realizing there may be something to do with my story. And so sure enough, when I say to her, well, you know, yeah, I, I do think there should be mercy shown to the murderous son. She says, well, why will you not show mercy to your murderous son? Right there, I knew Joab. Job had been up to something. I, I call Joab in. I say, listen, okay, you win. You win. He can come back. He can come back to Jerusalem. But he's not living here. He's not living under my roof. He can find his own house. I don't want to see him. I, I don't want to have anything to do with Absalom. And so he came back. That was the arrangement for the next two years. Absalom back in Jerusalem, but out of my sight. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you because I have a hunch that some of you may be able to relate to this. My complete refusal to have anything to do with Absalom during this time was the most inexcusable sin in my entire life. It certainly cost me the most. And some of you might say, come on, you committed adultery. You were behind murder. You're saying this was the worst? I'm saying, yeah, this was the worst. Because you know those other sins, that the, the Bathsheba, that was a, a, a moment of, of kind of irresponsible passion. And the, and the murder of Uriah was kind of a royal reflex to avoid detection. But with, with Absalom, my refusal to have anything to do with Absalom, one of your commentators actually got it absolutely right. He said, here's a sin with a blueprint. You know, this, this, took, this took commitment. This took strategy. This took planning. You know, Jerusalem at this stage wasn't a big city. It took vigilance in order for me to avoid seeing Absalom or being seen by Absalom. And yet that's what I was willing to do because I wanted nothing to do with them. You know, if someone had come and said to me, I could have explained and given all the rationale for why I thought this sort of restraining order was appropriate. I mean, my son Absalom, he needed to understand the seriousness of what he'd done. He'd committed murder. He needed to take responsibility for that and for the pain that he'd caused. And that's not necessarily wrong, but my son also needed to know that he was accepted by his father. And that there could be forgiveness from his father. And that he could have grace and mercy so he could just breathe and live. And he needed his father. He needed the love of his father. And I wasn't willing to give it to him. I wasn't willing to give it to him. So I say that because I pray that my failure as a father in this regard might be a lesson to some of you. Those of you who are fathers that whatever it is your son has done or your daughter has done, 
in order for them to be restored and to find health and well-being and restoration, they need their fathers. They need their fathers. But at this point, the fallout of the consequences of my sin extended from just the disintegration of my family, which I think you can see is pretty clear, to now the unraveling of the nation. Because at this point, things start to fall apart beyond my family. You know, Absalom at this point was a ticking time bomb. It wasn't a question of if he would explode. It was a question of when and how he would explode. He was still furious at the cold shoulder that I'd been given to him. And so he decides, well, I'm going to do something to get dad's attention. And so, so he, he begins with what seems like a petty act of vandalism. He goes and gets these torches, and he, he goes to the fields of Joab, my right-hand man, and he, he lights the fields, and the fields are ablaze. Well, I certainly got Joab's attention, and Joab's had it up to here by now. He comes to me, and he says, you know, this is enough. This has got to end. You've got you to bring him in some way. And I say, okay, okay, okay. So they bring Absalom to the palace, and I kind of issue this formal kiss of restoration. But there was no restoration between us. In fact, Absalom's reaction to this change of circumstances was in no uncertain terms to basically say to me, next time you can kiss this. Because the next stage of the explosion was, he decides he's going to turn the tables on me. He's going to turn the tables by giving me a dose of my own medicine. He says, so if you're going to, if you're going to exclude me, if you're going to keep a distance from me, well, I can do that too. I'm going, to, I'm going to exclude you too. But not just from my presence now. I'm going to exclude you from the kingdom. And at that point, Absalom begins to work towards an armed insurrection against me, against the king. I mean, I have to hand it to him. His, his cunning, his creativity in his... And his uh, planning was, was second to none. Second to none. The first thing he does is he, he, uh, you know, he gathers around himself all the trappings of royalty. He's got the little, little army here. He's got his, soul, he's got his uh, chariots, his horses. Figures that if you're going to be treated like a king, looked at like a king, you're going to act like a king. And the next thing he does, he, he comes every morning and, and camps out bright and early outside the palace, right at the palace, uh, palace gate so that, so that he can kind of ingratiate himself with all the people who are passing by, so that he can present himself as, as the man of the people, as a champion of them all, to be the, the great Democrat who, who wants to take care of everybody's needs. You know, unlike, unlike the one in the palace, unlike me. And so slowly but surely, Absalom is stealing the hearts of the people, albeit through lies and innuendos. This continued on for several years, several years of this. I, I, I kid you not. And then Absalom comes actually to see me and to tell me, you know, I, I want to go and fulfill, a, a, fulfill a, a vow that I made a long time ago at, at Hebron. Hebron just happened to be where I had been declared king. And in my blind naivete, I say, okay, off you go. I send you with my blessing. And so he goes, and you know, lo and behold, next thing I know, 
I hear news of an armed insurrection arising against me. He's declared himself as king. He's about to storm the capital. And he's planning the murder of his father. I realized at that point that this was serious. I realized that if I was going to protect the lives of my servants, my family, my entourage, we needed to get out of the city. We needed to escape. We needed to flee. But I, I have to tell you this, that for, actually for the first time in a long time, I actually felt like I started acting like a king again. Because I started to think not just about myself, but about the well-being of what was going on. I realized that if I stayed there, the confrontation between Absalom and myself, it wasn't going to be good for him. It wasn't going to be good for me. And I also realized that the Jerusalem, for Jerusalem's sake, I needed to let Absalom be able to take the city peacefully so that there would not be this, uh, the city would not be under siege. So it was this, this situation of being forced out of the city, being forced back into the wilderness where I had spent a lot of years previously, which kind of suddenly put me back in touch with the old David, which suddenly enabled me to start to think like a king where I would do what would be take, whatever it would take in order in order to save the city. So Absalom starts moving into Jerusalem from Hebron. And I start that painful, painful journey east with everyone who's still with me. We move out to the, the gates of the city and then we move further east out to that last house beyond the gates we actually stopped there at the, that house and all my entourage passed by me, including the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the, the Gittites who had been with me since Gath and Philistine. In other words, while my own son and many within Israel were rising up against me, in rebellion against me, here was God's reminder that he was still at work in this situation. He was still gathering to himself people who were part of God's family as promised to Abraham, that that promise being fulfilled, that God's people would be full of every nation, as indicated by these converted Philistines who had remained faithful to me. I mean, even Ittai the Gittite comes to me. I say, Ittai, you don't need to come with me. I understand you're faithful to me, but you, you should stay in the city. And, you know, he does his best impersonation of my grandmother, Ruth. He says, where you go, I go. I say, okay, okay, thank you. And so he brings his entourage, and all the little kids are toddling behind him as we, we head off. Across the Kidron Brook and up the Mount of Olives and down to the Jordan River and across to Mahanaim. And every, every stage of the journey, we're just weeping. Weeping. Weeping at what had come of all of this. Do not give in to the temptation of sin because it's never, it's never worth it. Absalom moved into the city. But all through this time, I want you to understand that still, as God was confronting me with my sin, he was still extending 
these little tastes of his grace to me in a way that I did not, didn't deserve. As we were fleeing, this guy called Shimei comes to us and he starts flinging rocks at me, piling rocks at me and throwing curses at me. You dirty old man, you murderer, you killer, get out of town. I say, well, if that's the grace of God, I'd hate to see what the grace of God is, and if that's how, what you're going to define by grace. But you see, you know, one of, my, one of my commanders, my nephew, was ready to take care of Shimei right then and there, but I restrained him because Shimei was right. He was telling the truth. I heard Shimei's word to me as a word from God because my identity right then wasn't as king. It was as a sinner saved by God's grace that had been forgiven. Shimei was just telling the truth. And then there was the devastating news that came about Ahithophel. Ahithophel was my right-hand man. He was my best advisor. You know, if you had Ahithophel as your advisor, it was like having Shohei Otani on your baseball team. You know, you didn't know King David was a baseball fan, but you know, there's all sorts of things you might be discovering today. Because Ahithophel was the consummate advisor. He was so wise. He was so sharp. Anytime I was in a quandary about what to do, I would go to Ahithophel, and lo and behold, he'd, he'd lay it all out, and it was clear again. And then I got word that Ahithophel had jumped ship. Ahithophel had betrayed me. I actually write about it in, in Psalm 55, the betrayal of a friend. That was Ahithophel. Turns out that Ahithophel, behind that sage and, and sharp reputation, was really just an opportunist. He was someone who, despite appearances, was really just looking out for himself. Hence, jumping ship. And yet, at that very moment, when I got the news about Ahithophel, I ironically started to pray. And I say ironically because my hunch was that during this time, as I had depended upon Ahithophel for his advice and his counsel, I had actually been distancing myself from God, bit by bit, failing to come to God to seek him and to pray to him because, well, I, I have a Ahithophel. I say that to you because maybe some of you can relate to this too, that you've kind of, you're living your Christian life by proxy through someone else, depending on what someone else says or what they're doing and not going to God yourself as I should have been doing. You know, seeking, seeking out a Ahithophel, seeking and consulting with a Ahithophel was, was much easier for me than praying. It was also a huge mistake. But at that moment, when I got that news, I prayed. I prayed, O oh Lord, may the counsel of Ahithophel turn to foolishness. And God would fulfill that promise, that, answer that prayer very clearly a little later on. But even at this early stage, I see an answer to that prayer in a way that I hadn't expected and certainly hadn't expected so quickly because just at that moment, I look up at the crest of the mountain of olives and I see the answer to my prayer coming with two feet and torn clothes and dirty hair, namely Hushai the Archite. And Hushai comes up to me and I have a conversation with him and I say, you know, Hushai, I, I don't actually need you to come with me. That wasn't because he was smelly. I want to tell you that, just clear that out of the air. It's not because he was smelly. It's because I actually needed him to go back to Jerusalem 
to be part of my spy network because I had this espionage network set back in Jerusalem to find out what exactly was going on with Absalom, and I needed Hushai to be part of that. And he said, okay, I'll go, I'll go, and off he went. So you see, even in the midst of all these consequences of my sin coming into my life, God was extending this grace to me. That's why even just before Ahithophel, I heard the news about Ahithophel, Zadok comes and he's bringing the Ark of the Covenant with him. He says, you know, we should bring the Ark with us. And I say to Zadok, no, I want you to take the Ark back to Jerusalem. Partly because I needed Zadok as one of my spies there too, but partly because I understood at this point that, that my survival, my safety, my well-being, my continuing as king was not going to be dependent upon the furniture of the Lord. It was going to only be dependent upon the favor of the Lord. That's who I needed. It was all by his grace. That's all that any of us ever need. It's that God's grace, it all depended on God. So we're, we're off in exile. Absalom has moved into Jerusalem with Ahithophel as his right-hand man, taking care of business. And in their minds, they've, they've got to come up with a strategy whereby they can basically get rid of me. And in Ahithophel's recommendation, it was twofold. He had a twofold strategy. And the first step was this, get this. His first step was this. He said, he said okay, Absalom, first thing here that we're going to do is you are going to go and sleep with each one of David's concubines that is still in Jerusalem. It was the most brazen declaration to anyone who would, have, who would watch that Absalom was breaking with the past, wanted nothing more to do with me, had no interest in reconciliation whatsoever with his father. And so here was this son of mine, this one who was so up in arms about the sexual violence committed by Amnon to Tamar, who apparently now has no problem with a sexual crime perpetrated against his father. And so they set up a tent on the roof of the palace at the exact place where I had had that fatal gaze of Bathsheba. And they brought the concubines in one by one by one to Absalom in the tent for him to have sex with. It was the most brutal and obvious fulfillment of what Nathan had told me, which was that God was going to give my wives over to my neighbor. I just hadn't fathomed that my neighbor would be my son. Do not give in to the temptation of sin because it never pays off. As Absalom is planning this, the other part of the strategy that Ahithophel wants to present is military in manner. That is just how are we going to, how are we going to exterminate David? And at this stage, Hushai has arrived. Hushai has kind of eased his way into Absalom's inner circle. I think Absalom was a little suspicious at first. Hushai convinces him, no, I'm on your side now. I'm not on David's side. And so now he's got Ahithophel and he's got Hushai. And he asks them both, okay, what, what should we do? What should our strategy be right now? And Ahithophel says, well, here's what I think we should do. I think we should, we should just focus in on David. Get rid of David. David, kill David and kill David alone. And then Hushai comes and says, well, I think on this occasion, actually, Ahithophel is, 
wrong. He said, I think we need to wipe out the entire army. I think, we, I think that's the only way to prevent civil war here. Hushai's strategy actually was brilliant because in one fell swoop, he not only appealed to Absalom's insecurity, but also his vanity. He would be, he would be the commander of an army that defeated David's army. It also sowed seeds of doubt about Ahithophel's wisdom, his advice. And then importantly for me, it actually just bought me time. So I was able to cross back over the Jordan and get resources from our allies and, and prepare the army. You know, I, I, was, I was no young man at this time. This is towards the end of, of my reign. But, and I, but I, I felt re-energized. I was ready to lead my army into this battle, albeit against my son. But my, my men pressed me. They said, no, you know, you, you, need, to, you need to stay here. You need to stay in Mahanaim. You need to stay safe. I reluctantly agreed. So I stood up on the platform watching them as they headed off, but I said to them, you know, here's one last command for you. Please, please, please deal gently. Deal gently with my lad Absalom. And you're thinking, are you nuts? Do you, have you just forgotten what you've just told us over the last 20 minutes? Uh, and I'm like, no. I mean, I, I know what Absalom has done. I know that he'd been, he'd been working against me, unbeknownst to me, for years. I knew that he'd actually tried to kill me. I knew that he'd been pursuing me like Saul had pursued me all those years ago. But he was still my son. And I was still his father, and I, I, had, I had failed him as a father. And the weight of that just bore me down as I watched my army march off to war against the army of my son. So all that was left for me to do was to wait and wait. I sat between the two gates waiting. It was not lost upon me that the last time I'd been waiting for news for a battle was for a good news of, from my point of view of the death of a man, Uriah. Now I was waiting for news of the safety of a man, my son Absalom. Days went by, no news. I had my watchman up on the, on the roof of the gate watching to see if there was any, anyone coming with news. And then eventually the day came where he says, there's someone coming, there's someone running towards us. He's on his own. And I thought, finally, finally some news. And they said, wait, there's someone a little bit behind him coming as well. I thought maybe, here's an update. He said, the, the first runner, he looks like he's, he, he's running the way Ahimehez, the son of Zadok, runs. You know, in, in less pressured times, I might have said, how do you know how Ahimehez runs? But it wasn't the time. I said, oh, finally, he's a good man. He, he's going to have good news. He's got to have good news, which was, frankly, the desperate clutching at straws of an anxious father. Ahimehaz arrived and said, all is well, shalom. The Lord be blessed because he has given victory to you over your enemies. And I said, that's not what I want to know. I want to know about my son, Absalom. Is there shalom with Absalom? Is he well? And he had no answer for that. He stepped aside. We waited for the next runner. He happened to be a Cushite. He comes and gives the same news. You know, the Lord has delivered you from the, your enemy, from the army. 
Again, I said, what about my son? Is there shalom with Absalom? And he said to me, may the enemy of the king be like that man. I said, come again. May the enemy of, enemies of, that, of the king be like that young man. He said, he's dead. He's dead. I wasn't in a position or a place at that point to hear any details about what had happened. But later on, I find out that Absalom is riding on his mule in the forest, and he's going under these, these thick branches of an oak tree, and, and he gets caught, his head gets caught in the branches, in the thick branches as the, the mule continues on. And so he's, he's hanging there, still alive. And one of my soldiers sees him, and he goes to Joab, and he tells Joab about it. And Joab, Joab's livid, furious that he hadn't finished Absalom off. And, and the soldier said, I was there. I heard what the king said. The king said, be gentle towards my son. Well, apparently Joab didn't think it was important to abide by my rules because for him it was politically expedient to get rid of Absalom. And so with his sticks, he starts off the job and then brings in some more men to finish it off, to kill my son. I was in no place to hear those details as I heard the news out of the mouth of this Cushite. I was, well, you would have been too, right? Numb, devastated, crushed. I needed to be alone, so I, I climbed up the steps to the room above, above the gate, and then as I'm climbing, I, 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 I couldn't hold it in anymore. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, my son, Absalom, would that I had died in your place instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab gets wind of the news that the king is crying inconsolably in this room and so he comes in and let's just say he's not the most sympathetic character in the face of the earth and he starts reading me the riot act he's like you're king you're acting like you lost this battle you got all these soldiers out there and as far as they can tell you could care less about them you know, your tears, they're just pouring scorn and shame upon these soldiers who've risked their lives, who've done everything necessary to save your skin, save the kingdom, unless you go out there and stand before them and thank them for their sacrifice, their devotion to you. You're not just going to lose this army. You're going to lose the people. And he was right, of course. But he was my son. Such is the cost of the tension between a king's paternal role and his political role. But I did what he said. I shuffled out to beneath the gate, sat down with all the people before their king, their victorious king. Who on the inside is just this broken, broken man.
Do not give in to the temptation of sin because it's never, never worth it. You know, I still get a lump in my throat 3,000 years on from those events and 2,000 years on from the coming of the greater David, the great son of David, Jesus the Messiah, who in his coming told a story of another son and another father. I think you know it as the parable of the prodigal son. Here was the story of a father who was totally unlike me. This father has a rebellious son. The son comes to the father and says, I want nothing to do with you anymore. I'm leaving. I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine. And he leaves. And from that day on, that father stood on his porch and looked out as far as his eyes could see, just waiting for that day when a speck would appear on the horizon and that speck would get closer and closer and closer and it would be his son. And that day came. And for this father, there was no passivity. There was no keeping a distance. There was no restraining order against the rebellious son. This son, picks, this father, picks up his robe and runs, throwing decorum to the wind, runs to his son and runs and runs and wraps his arms around his son and says, we're having the party to end all parties because you, my son, have come home. The exact opposite of David, the father. And yet, a beautiful picture of my heavenly father and I pray your heavenly father. Because it's this picture of the father who has shown grace to all his rebellious children. I had seen glimpses of that grace even in the midst of all the consequences of my sin. And it's a grace that he longs to pour out to any of us. You know, all of, all of you, I'm sure, have made big mistakes in your life, maybe not as big as mine. But whatever your mistakes, this God wants to show grace in your life to give you forgiveness for whatever it is and to lift you out of any kind of shame and guilt for your past and give you a new start, give you a new beginning. But that doesn't cancel the consequences of our sin. But I leave you with this question. Why pile up further consequences by further intentional sin? Why do that? Especially when you know that here is a God who is your Heavenly Father who loves you, who cares for you, who wants the absolute best for you. Do not give in to the temptation of sin, either sins of commission or sins of omission, because it's never worth it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for David's story, not only the successes and the ways in which we see him to be a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus, but also the ways in which he shows to us our need for a savior because in his sin he acted in ways that we perhaps have acted. 
In his family, he failed in ways that we perhaps have failed. We thank you for that base note of forgiveness, of grace in his life, that he was forgiven, that you would not hold his sin against him, but also the somber reminder that there are consequences to all the sins in our lives. And help us, Lord, therefore, to heed this warning from you, not to give in, not to give in, but by the strength and the help of your spirit in our lives to resist sin, to flee from it, knowing that it's never worth it. Help us, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.